Loving God, we give you thanks for your written word. As we reflect on it now, may we behold again your living word, Jesus Christ our Lord, and be transformed by the power of your spirit. Amen. Amen. Some, some of you may have heard the story of a class of students who, on handing in an essay for an assessment, were asked to sign a written declaration that they had received no external assistance in the production of their work. Well, one sincere Christian student was a little bit troubled by the declaration she was being asked to sign, and so she approached the teacher. Uh, Miss, she said, I'm really not sure that I can sign this declaration because I prayed for God's help as I researched for the essay and I prayed for God's help as I wrote the essay. Well, the, the teacher was a little taken aback by this act of almost naive honesty and so asked to see the student's work. And after a few minutes of reading the essay, the teacher looked up and said to her, I think it's pretty safe for you to sign the declaration. <laughs> I wonder if you've ever prayed for something that just never seemed to come. That sense of hope slowly being replaced by resignation. The sinking feeling that this is just not going to happen. The story of Abraham and Sarai has a powerful resonance with me. Uh, whilst Joe and I are blessed with two wonderful, well, mostly wonderful teenagers who are flourishing in so many ways, for a significant period of our early married life, it seemed like our heartfelt prayer to be parents was simply bouncing off the ceiling. In a very real and painful way for us, we had to be reconciled to the possibility that we might never have children of our own. And as we join the story of Abraham and Sarai in our Old Testament passage today, it is likely that they were in that kind of place. Three chapters prior to our passage, God had called Abraham to uproot his people and his father's household and to travel to a new land that he was to be given, with the firm promise that the Lord would make of him a great nation. At that point, Abraham was 75 years old and had no children since his wife Sarai had been unable to conceive and was now beyond childbearing age. God's promise to Abraham must have filled his heart with unlikely hope. Hope that he would, after all, father and heir despite all evidence to the contrary. But by the beginning of chapter 15, the passage we've heard read earlier, Abraham's hope had turned to resignation that this would never happen. O oh Lord God, he cried out, what can you give me? For I continue childless. You have given me no offspring, and so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But let's pause just for a moment to consider God's reply. This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. Look toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to count them. So shall your descendants be. Imagine yourself 
in Abraham's shoes. What would you be thinking on hearing this? I guess a degree of doubt would be understandable, if not outright cynicism. Yeah, right. Are you having a laugh at my expense, God? But instead, we get a simple statement. A statement so profound and significant that St. Paul quoted it in his letter to the church in Rome, and he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed the Lord. And this simple trust was credited to him as righteousness. When St. Paul appeals to this verse in Romans chapter 4, he does so as part of his argument to show that our salvation is not a result of anything we have done, but is wholly a gift from God, which we receive by faith through Christ's faithfulness. Abraham believed and the Lord reckoned it freely, undeservedly, to him as righteousness. Abraham did nothing really to deserve or warrant God's favour, but having received that promise, Abraham responded in thankfulness. And his response was twofold. It was a response of faith. Abraham believed the Lord. He took God at his word, no matter how preposterous that word might have seemed. And it was a response of faithfulness. Abraham freely and faithfully followed God's instructions that came after the promise. Those instructions set up the ancient practice of sealing a covenant, or you could say, quite literally, cutting a deal. The custom was to take animals and to cut them in half. The two parties to the covenant would then walk between the halves of the dismembered animals as a symbol of invoking a similar fate on themselves should they break their pledge. A gruesome way of sealing an agreement between two parties such that they were able to hold each other to their word, to their half of the bargain. And we thought that Brexit was messy. Sorry, I've just uh, mentioned that word, haven't I? It's really not a good thing to mention. But notice what happened in the sealing of this particular covenant in our Old Testament reading. Once Abraham had prepared the animals according to God's instruction, we are told that a deep sleep fell upon him. A terrifying darkness descended upon him, perhaps evoking the holy solemnity of the occasion. And then a truly significant thing happened. A smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the animal pieces. And so we are told, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. God's covenant with Abraham was indeed sealed, but it was one-sided. The Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Whereas custom required both parties to pass between the animal pieces to symbolize the commitment made by each, here Abraham was sent to sleep as the deal was cut. In other words, God did not require Abraham to promise anything in return for God's pledge. The covenant was made by the Lord as a free gift of grace. 
The mysterious smoking firepot and flaming torch call to mind for us the pillar of cloud and column of fire that travelled with the Israelites in the Exodus. God walked between the animal carcasses, but only God did. The Abrahamic covenant as we know it then was a covenant of divine grace. And it was a covenant that remained even when Abraham, in the very next chapter of Genesis, took matters into his own hands by sleeping with his wife's servant Hagar so that she might conceive the heir for him. Even when Abraham showed such a lack of faith in God's promises, God remained true to his covenant. And Sarai, by then Sarah, went on to conceive a son, Isaac. Nevertheless, the effects of Abraham's actions can still sadly be seen today. Many religious commentators point to the casting out of Hagar and Ishmael following Isaac's birth as the start, the beginning of an ongoing conflict between their descendants. And we have been so tragically reminded of such related hatred by the sickening attacks in Christchurch on Friday. We grieve for those affected and we lament the hatred and the prejudice that leads to such atrocities. But friends, surely the Abrahamic covenant, the undeserved one-sided promise of God's grace, should compel all people of faith and especially those of the Abrahamic faiths to seek to live together in mutual love, respect, and peace, for none are deserving of God's grace. It is freely given. And for us as Christians, this obligation to live in peace with all people is made even clearer when we look to the person of Jesus Christ. In our Gospel reading, we find the Son of God bearing the cost that a one-sided covenant of grace necessitates. As he responds to the Pharisees' warnings about Herod's plans to kill him, Jesus evokes two images which, when put together, speak powerfully of his own vulnerability as he faced imminent death. The first image, seemingly in defiance, Jesus refers to King Herod as a fox. Go and tell that fox for me. Listen. I'm casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I finish my work. And Jesus goes on to tell them that he will continue his journey towards Jerusalem because it is there and nowhere else that he must be killed. And then he utters those words that are heavy with emotion and compassion and in which we see the second image. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Whereas Abraham had believed the Lord, Jesus here exposes with sadness the lack of faith his people had in the words of God, even killing the prophets and messengers who spoke them and their lack of faithfulness in response to God's love and grace. You were not willing. 
the response of Israel to God's covenant of love was severely lacking, and yet God remained committed to them. But more than this, through Jesus, God would establish a new covenant, again, freely given. Only this covenant would extend not only to the descendants of Abraham and Isaac, but to all people. And this covenant would be sealed not by the blood of animals, but by the blood of God's own son. Did you spot it? Herod is the fox, and Jesus is the hen. And we all know what happens when you put foxes and hens together. Such is the vulnerability of the God who enters into a free covenant of grace. On the surface, the Old Testament and gospel passages that we've heard read this morning seem unrelated. But when you get beneath the surface, they are both about the same thing. God's amazing love, God's compassion for his created people, a love and a compassion that propels him to enter into a covenant of grace, an act of salvation that isn't earned or negotiated in a deal mutually struck, but is given freely at great cost. And friends, we are recipients of that grace, completely undeserved and widely offered. As St. Paul writes in the epistle reading, our citizenship is in heaven and it is from there that we're expecting a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as I come into land, I guess the question for us is how do we respond to such grace? For when we've received such undeserved love, It is impossible for us to continue to live life as if it didn't exist. God's love compels us to be a people of faith, a people who trust in God and wear our relationship with him on our sleeves. And God's love compels us to be a people of faithfulness, a people who take God at his word and act in obedience, a people who are willing to receive God's love and live their lives in love according to God's values. Of course, such a response doesn't mean that we'll never get things wrong. And if the season of Lent reminds us of anything, it reminds us of our utter dependence on God's grace and transformative forgiveness. But being in receipt of this one-sided covenant does mean that every part of our life is brought into the focus of God's wonderful light. Friends, when this act of worship ends this morning, when you've had your cup of tea or coffee or whatever you drink, and return home ready to begin another week, what will it mean for you? What will it mean for me to respond to God's grace in faith and faithfulness tomorrow, on Tuesday, and to the very end of our lives. Shall we pray? Let's hold a moment of silence 
as in our own hearts and minds, we respond to the God of love who has freely given to us his gift of grace. Loving God, as we respond to the wonders of your love, would you fill us afresh with your holy and life-giving spirit, that our lives may be lives marked by faith, trust, and by faithful living. And we pray this to your greater praise and glory, through Christ our Lord. Amen.